Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Lamed Tet, page 39. We're actually coming up to the end of this Masachat soon, so please pay attention. This week we'll be announcing our end of Sukkah Siyum uh, plans. Um, we know that the calendar is a little bit hectic, but we're uh, hopefully going to be able to figure out a way for us all to get together. Um, there's a great discussion here with a new Mishnah about Shemitah, which Anne is going to get to, um, and that we particularly like because we are coming up to a Shemitah year. But I wanted to just end on the last point that's made about Halal on this death. Levarech Yivarech, right? So the Mishnah talked about that in a place where there's a custom to make a bracha on Halal, we make a bracha. And the Gemara makes the following comment. Amar Abaye, right? So Abaye says, um, lo, uh, right? He says, lo shna acharav, So Abaye basically points out that this discussion about whether or not to make a bracha is about after halal, right? That concluding bracha that we make. But obviously we have to make a bracha beforehand, Right? Because you must make a bracha before you perform a mitzvah. To Amar Rav Yehuda, Amar Shmuel, because Rav Yehuda said in the name of Shmuel, Kol mitzvah kulan mevarech alehem over la'asiyatan. Because all mitzvot, right, you need to make a bracha about them before you actually perform them. Um, and so it's interesting that this is sort of the principle uh, by which they're working. I do want to note that I also think it's interesting that this is an Amoraic statement. It's not a Tanaitic statement that was codified in a Mishnah. These are Amoraim talking. So I think just the idea of, you know, having to have a bracha seems to be a later halachic development. But then the Gemara does something even more interesting where they want to pay very close attention to the language that Rav Yehuda quotes in the name of Shmuel. How do we know that when he says this word of over, right, it is a language of beforehand? Um, and so here, it's Amor of Nachman Bar Yitzchak. So now they're going to quote another saying of another Amora, and they're going to quote a series of three psukim, one from Shmuel Bet, one from Bereshit, and one from Micha, right? And all of them use the, the Shorash of Aleph Bet Reish, and it means like before or ahead of, right? So the first one is Vayarat Achimat, Derech Akikar Vayavor Etakushi, right? So Achimat ran um, the way of the plane and overtook, he, he passed the Kushi, right? So it means he was ahead of, right? Abayim Amar Mihacha, Abayim uses this pasuk from Barisha from chapter 33, verse 3, Nehem, right? Where it says that he passed before them. Um, and if you want, you could also say it's from here. Here's the quote of Pasuk from Micha, chapter 2, verse 13. Right? And their king passed by Yavor before them and the king at their head. So uh, overall, I found this whole section to be interesting that we're, you know, sort of bringing a proof from an Amoraic statement and not a Tanaitic statement to declare a principle in halakha that a bracha must be said before any mitzvah. And then, you know, sort of we're, we're used to sort of very close attention being paid to language in Mishnah. But it's now interesting to see the same sort of attention being paid to an Amoraic statement. And in a way, they're sort of trying to say like, okay, you know, how can we prove that this word over, this Hebrew word, actually can mean before 
um, and, and by using sort of proof text. So I, I thought this whole, you know, way that they work this out uh, is a different methodology and something new that we haven't quite seen before. So I always like these methodological observations and, and insights, so thank you for that. Uh, well, the thing that struck me, I think, was the fact that it seems that there's a debate, you know, even back then over when you make what bracha over such a thing as halal. And, you know, I remember in my childhood or, I don't know, teenagers maybe, the debate that I believe is still raging over, in certain circles anyway, over whether you make a bracha over halal and yomat smaut or not. In Israel, it's kind of been resolved, but certainly in outside of the land of Israel, I think people really regard it as a halachic conundrum. Do you say halal during, like in the place of halal, the same way it would be, um, you know, on this day of Sukkot, right? Or do you say it after davening, whatever? There's always this big discussion. So what I found interesting here is that, you know, like this idea of lo shano el of mitzvah meaning it's a custom over there, but over there it's required. I just found it really like this has been going on forever. Okay, um, as Yerdina said, I want to get to the discussion in the mission and then the Gemara about Shemitah. So if you buy a lulav from somebody else on during a Shemitah year, now this is complicated um, because during Shemitah, you're not supposed to have any commerce over the produce of the Shemitah year to begin with. So what happens? You've purchased, the, somebody's purchased a lulav from somebody else during Shemitah year. And the implication is that this guy, the seller, doesn't really know anything. So he's, you know, the assumption is he's ignorant of what was really supposed to happen here. And then, noten lo et rog b'matana. So the seller, that's the that's the the same person who seems to be not so uh, wise to the details of the Shemitah year, it gives, in addition to the lulav, gives an etrog as a gift. Because he's not permitted to purchase, meaning the buyer is not permitted to purchase the etrog during Shemitah, right, which is a whole issue. So it seems then from this Mishnah that buying the lulav is acceptable, or at least to some degree, depending. Again, if he's if the seller is an ignoramus, then how this is taking place is a, is a bit of a curiosity. But then, you know, the idea that he gives the etrog so he knows enough to know that he can't be engaged in commerce over the, over the proof, of, excuse me, over the fruit of a Shemitah year. Which is, again, I'm going to say, once you're get delving into the details of Shemitah, when which fruit becomes, um, you know, an issue in terms of Shvi'it is an interesting conundrum. But, okay, we're not going to get there. We're going to just dive into the Gemara first. Lo ratza litain lo b'matana mahu. What happens if the seller doesn't want to give the etrog as a gift? Meaning he's he's out there selling. Whatever he's doing, he's not taking the year off, Right. So what they would do then, and this is, you know, tricky, and maybe it's not exactly the the spirit of the law, but it's certainly within the letter of the law, they would incorporate that, the price, the cost of the etrog, into the price of the lulav. So what that means, of course, is that when you buy your lulav every other year, that's not a Shemitah year, it's a much less costly thing because it doesn't have the cost of the etrog kind of woven into it. But so then the Gemara says, well, that's the same kind of thing as just buying your etrog outright, behedya, specific, uh, explicitly, right? Like you can call it, you know, incorporate it into the price of the lulav, but we all know that that's completely fictional. So the Gemara answers, So the Gemara says, you can never transfer 
money to buy shvi'it, to buy any produce from the land of, from the year of Shemitah, to an Amaris, to somebody who really doesn't know this stuff to begin with. Because what happens if he would then make improper use of that same money, you know, because there's certain conditions of, of how this is going to go down during a Shemitah year. The Tanya, so we've got a bright to support that. So you would never give the money to an, to an Amaharat, who I guess we can translate as an ignoramus, the, for, a, for your purchase of Shvi'it, of um, produce from the Shemitah year. Uh, no more, no more money than the value of food for shalosh sudot. Meaning, you can give him enough money to make sure that he can eat for those three meals. Sure, okay, we'll keep him going, but not for the regular, not for regular, um, pro, you know, purchase power, whatever, where things would u- usually presumably be co- more costly. The imasar. So, what happens if you've done this? Right, you've already transferred the money. Yomar. So then you say. So then, so what happens? The, the buyer, who's not an Amaretz, gives them, has transferred the money, which is meaning a value of money, the amount of money is more than the amount for just the three meals that is permitted. So then he says, this money is deconsecrated. He is no longer consecrated because he's exchanging them uh, redeeming them rather in exchange for the fruits that are in his house that have nothing to do with Shemitah. So that the idea is that since that money would have been counted as consecrated money because of the Shemitah transaction, he's going to remove that level of Kedusha and thereby help the Ama Aretz um, who sell her. And then what happens? Then he goes home and he eats the produce in the same way that if he was treating, you know, anything with Shemitah, right? He would, that's what he's doing. He's going to go home and treat the same produce at home with the Kedusha because he's transferred it fundamentally, which is by itself a mind-blowing kind of concept. But we've seen it before and it's a way to help everybody out in this situation. Um, okay, and then we've got... We've got another case here. So what happens if we're talking about a case where this is going on for the Breitah, right? That if you're allowed to transfer money to purchase Shvi'it from an Amaretz for no more than the value of the three meals, right? And we're talking here about a case where you're purchasing from a field. So this is Lokech Min What if you're taking from a field that is ownerless? It has no owner during the Shemitah year to begin with, in which case all of those terms are completely different because the issues, and this is really a sidebar, really about Hilchot Shemitah, right? The idea is that once there's once the field itself is ownerless, then the very act of gathering the produce, right, meaning the harvesting itself, not the produce, can count as what you might be paying the Amaratz for. So then you're okay, meaning it's not a problem that you've paid, you've overpaid, you know, more than the three meals, more than the three meals amount. Um, But if you were to buy produce that would come from, you know, a real owner, right, the Amaratz buys produce from a field that has an owner, and it's dealt with in the Shemitah year, but not in a way that is acceptable in the Shemitah year, well, then you've got a problem of a blokechmina meshumar, a fil bekechatsi isar, even if it's just a tiny little amount, that's a kechatsi isar, it's only worth that amount, asur. Then you cannot buy from him in any way because 
you've got a, this issue of the Kedusha that transferred during the Shemitah year. And I feel like, you know, the Gemara, as we've talked about in the past, sometimes the Gemara presumes that we all know everything that we're supposed to already know about what it's going to delve into now without giving us any introduction or even sidebars about how Shemitah really works and all these details of Shemitah. So it, we learn it or we see it, you know, aga, by the by, this is what's here. Uh, but And it becomes, you know, kind of critical to understand this particular case of the Lulav and the Etrog during the Shemitah year, which, of course, again, is what we have this year. But I would say I wouldn't worry about it quite because this kind of discussion about it, like, which presupposes that you already know everything, is a little bit still of a of a far-flung kind of example of a case because in real life, you know, if you buy some from somebody reputable, you're not going to end up with a situation to begin with. What they're selling you is not going to be the problem. Um, okay, the Gemara, of course, continues to on to this to discuss this with, you know, an objection and a resolution and so on. But with that, I'm going to stop. Yudana, maybe you have something you want to comment on Shemitah and how the Shemitah is going to work here. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, I just, I think that it's a really interesting and important point that because this mitzvah, the Arba Minim, is agricultural in nature, we can't lose sight of the fact that during a Shemitah year, it has to be, yeah, like, the same way that we've talked about true and maestro with regard to these same species, we also have to accommodate the phenomenon of Shemitah because that's, that's how this religion works. I love that this passage is here. To me, this was one of the nice nistars I always talk about with doing the daf, uh, that this is exactly what Shemitah is this year in Sukkot, right? Like the lulav, is it from year six, year seven, the etrog? So these are exactly the things that we're going to be grappling with, with this year's Sukkot and with next year's Sukkot. And like you said, Anne, you know, it's just interesting to see this is an agricultural mitzvah by nature. So where does it spill over into other agricultural halachot? Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rink is review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.